take our Bibles and turn to that same psalm, to Psalm 76, found on page 487 in your pew Bible. Psalm 76, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. Hear now the word, as those were the words of the Lord, so too are these the very inspired and errant word of Almighty God. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment, to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring, around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. As far the reading of God's holy an inspired word. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing a word for us tonight in your providence, one that speaks to us of that which you call us to, a fear of you, Almighty God, to fear your Son, the great Lion of Judah. Father, to fear because that is what your Spirit places in our hearts as you change us and shape us, as you restore us to a right relationship with yourself. And so, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our spirit would be pleasing to you, that your word would be spoken, that, Father, you would use it, that it would not return void, but it would accomplish that for which you send it, and that you would receive all the praise and glory for it. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, children of God called to be saints, in the state of Michigan, it would seem that lions are not to be feared. Whether on the football field or at the John Ball Zoo, the example of lions that we usually come across are not altogether majestic or awesome. They are certainly not fearful. But I imagine, children, if you were able to go on a safari in Africa and you ended up there on a savanna all alone by yourself and came across a lion one-on-one, you'd be a little bit petrified, scared, shaking completely and utterly. You'd be very much afraid. Knowing what a lion is, knowing what a lion can do, should give us every reason to fear. And so while many people are afraid of wild animals, of lions and tigers and bears, Few consider what it is to know and fear God. We know what it is to fear animals, but not the almighty sovereign creator of heaven and earth. 
that even we, those bought by the precious blood of Jesus, who have been made to know God, who have been brought by His grace and kindness into relationship with Him, don't always consider the fear of the Lord. We don't think how that fear should shape our day by day. We don't always think about how that fear should shape our worship in terms of holiness or even in terms of our hope. That if we are honest, considering the sin of our hearts, we don't always fear God. And that should give us an abundance of pause this evening. And while, yes, we understand that we don't need to live in paralyzing doubt or fear in terms of our standing, fear is still required of us in terms of awe and and respect and reverence and, and obedience. And this talk of lions, then, is not just random information in a sermon introduction, but that is how God is being referenced here in Psalm 76. That it's making reference to God as a lion in our midst, making his dwelling place among us. And that too should give us pause. That while we might go to the zoo or even on a safari in the safety of a a secure jeep and with hunters with us, that lion is among us now. In fact, it's the way the beavers speak of Aslan and C.S. Lewis as the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Let's go back. That you will. I should feel, let's start again. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else silly. Then isn't he safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. And so while that is simply a story, an allegory in many ways, we do well to heed its wisdom in considering our relationship with an almighty God. He is not safe. But our king is good, very good. And that knowledge comes as we enter in more deeply and deeper and deeper into relationship with God. That our fear doesn't abate the more we come to know him, but becomes more informed. Deeper, more reverent, more awesome and awful. That really congregation to know God is to fear God. To know God is to fear God. And we fear because He is near us. And still nearer in Christ's incarnation. And still nearer in a Holy Spirit that we claim resides in our hearts. And so that knowledge of who He is, of His presence, His power and glory, yes, should drive us to fear, but also to worship. Again, to that reverence, to a life of thanks. It says in Isaiah 12, verse 6, Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, that place where he dwells. Why? For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. We fear him because he is holy and we are not. And yet he draws near to us that we might know him and that we might continue to bow before him humbly. 
And so we consider this truth because he is among us as a roaring lion, one to be known and feared. And so that's our theme tonight. The Lion of Judah draws near to deliver his people and to declare his sure judgment. And so in drawing near and by his grace, we're made to know two things. We're made to know the power of God in verses 1 through 6, and then made to know the fear of God, or fear the judgment of God in verses 7 through 12. Made to know the power of God, made to fear the judgment of God. But if you hear that statement again, made to know the power of God, to even speak this is the most profound of blessings that we might know the one true God, made to know the power of God, made to know why God is to be praised, or just to say it, to know Him, to love Him, to be known by Him. And so this psalm, but, but also all the things that God has made, serves for that very purpose, to highlight who He is and what He's done and what He's promised. And so what sets apart a people then is the fact that they know him, but more importantly are known by him. And so the first line in the psalm speaks of who's been made to know him. Verse 1, in Judah, God is known. Here is the special people and the special kingdom. Here are those who are made to know that even them, Descendants of someone as despicable and as unworthy a man as Judah was for most of his life, that we, not great in ourselves, have been called to know God. God is known among us. Here in their possession, then, the line of Christ, the possession of the lion of Judah. And yet as Judah was not great in herself, so are we, not great in ourselves. No, the greatness of a people is only in their knowledge of God, knowledge of the power of God, and in their submission to it. And that greatness then would be known by way of his name. His name is great in Israel. They too chosen, not because of their might, not because of their numbers, but only of the electing love and good pleasure of Almighty God. That by His power they are given such revelation. By His power a covenant is made with them and with their children. His name is great in Israel because by His power Israel has been delivered and given that place and given that relationship. And as those made part then of that true Israel, we cannot give him thanks enough. That the Lord created a people for himself and his power and worked in them by his power even in their sin and weakness. And he could do so because he was in their midst. And that should cause us to pause and consider even amongst us, a church, a collection of God's people called out where that God is known and his name is to be revered and worshipped as great. To be mindful, there is no power among us, not as families, not as a church body, nor as a collection of true churches, without God making himself known, without the Lord living in power and working in power by his word and Holy Spirit. We need that power to work because we know our hearts. Certainly we could say, well, we know Israel's heart and we know Judah's heart. We've seen it through much of that Elijah cycle. 
But yet we, we're still a people who at times only have the appearance of godliness and, and who deny that power, that true power of God. That it's as though we, we've gotten very comfortable dismissing that powerful lion among us because we're too busy acting in our own strength, our own power, too busy doing our thing and serving ourselves. And so we need the words of the psalm to convict us. Is he known? Is he powerful? And what does that require of me? Because here, to know God means that we know where that great lion is dwelling, where he is working. Verse 2, his abode has been established in Salem. And Salem here is just short for Jerusalem. To think of that, an almighty God dwelt in their midst, in the place of his choosing, dwelling there so that his kingdom would be established, that his people would be protected, more that his people in that place would worship him alone. It says in Isaiah 31, for thus the Lord said to me as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey and when a band of shepherds is called out against him. He is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and its hill. Like a bird hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare it and rescue it. And so even in that mixed metaphor, we recognize that to know God is to know that he is powerful to save. Powerful to gather a people to himself. Powerful to live within their midst. To change us and change our hearts so that worship would be given exclusively to him. To him who makes his dwelling in Zion. And it's here where you have that interesting play of words that that doesn't come out in our own translation in the text. Because if we look at both of those words in these last couple of lines, abode and dwelling place... Both of them make reference to the lair of a lion. Jerusalem and Zion are his lair. That here is where the lion goes forth in his power to fight for his people. The power of God in the midst of a people, not only to defend them, but so that his people would know him. And so that those who live in rebellion before him would fear And it becomes an image taken up not just by C.S. Lewis, it's taken up by the prophets. Jeremiah 25, 38, like a lion he has left his lair. For their land has become a waste because of the sword of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. Amos 3, verse 8, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? That brothers and sisters, again, to know this God is to fear him. And that needs to be true among us. Because this is the power that he uses in the midst of the church, in all things, in his sovereign providence to bring about our good and his glory, to protect the church and to keep her forever. And it's in that promise then that he says what? I am dwelling, my lair, my house, my headquarters is in my royal city. That's what Zion is. And so, yes, it's another reference to Jerusalem, but already a reminder of our assurance for a heavenly city 
where we will be with him as his royal children forever. That's his promise. That's the one who prowls in the best way among us. But why can we have that comfort? Why in reading this psalm can we find some anchor there, even in the midst of a lion who ought to rightly terrify us? It's because we know his power. You see, that wonder of powerful things that does really scare us. And it should scare us. But recognizing when that power is used rightly to create that which is good or right or pleasing. Yes, it's feared, but it is good. And so here is our assurance that his power will be known in the story of his faithfulness that is our lives. Known in every act, every every action of the Almighty's creation, known in the deliverance that He's worked for us and for all of His people, from Egypt even to the very beginning in promising to crush the serpent's head, all the way to the time of this psalm writing and forever. That is the lion and the protection that He affords us in His power. And even in this psalm, the event that is most likely being referenced is the great defeat of Sennacherib, in the power and plan of the Lord, recorded in Isaiah 37, 36. So here is Sennacherib cutting off the city. He cries out to its leaders in Hezekiah's day, you know what, don't you talk about your God because no other God has stood before us in our army. We're going to camp out here. We're going to squeeze you off and take away all that you had. Isaiah 37, 36, and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. The Lord fought for them to deliver them. The Lord fought for them to provide for them. But that's really the story. That's what's true about every interaction between the Lion of Judah and all of the enemies of God that the Lord will fight for us, we need only to be silent. He will make His power and glory known, and the praise for His victories belongs to Him alone. But yet we doubt that. Are we still talking about the same God today? What is He going to do in these days? Look how dark it is. Look how small so many churches are. Look how silenced our witness is. What are we going to do? Who's going to help? Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. The Lion of Judah fights for us. How powerful is that Lion in Judah in Israel's midst? Verse 3, there he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. The flashing of the arrows, every one of those arrows that glistens in the sunlight because of their sheer numbers. No effect. The shield, the sword, the weapons of war, every instrument completely destroyed by his awesome and authoritative power. There is nothing that stands before our God. He makes wars to cease over the ends of the earth. The Lord fights for us. And our knowledge of him, of his power and victory, is then better than anything this world could say to us anything they could offer us, any false hope or platitude that they might give. 
No, we are bound up because of our understanding of who he is, of knowing this lion, bound up in his glory. Verse 4, glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. And in that word glorious, the commentator Motir refers to God as as being spotlighted, highlighted in verse 1 who he is. But now here it is. Look to him. Don't, Don't look to all of those other things. Don't look to the battle that is waging around you. Don't focus on those things that would take your attention away from him and his glory. Here's the spotlight. More than the majestic mountains, more than any victory that could be had, more than any of the most successful hunts you have ever been on, is the knowledge of the glory of God. You have all of the understanding of that power that you need to continue to trust and not be afraid, certainly not of the world, as you find yourself truly living in the fear of God. But it's that power, His illumination worked for us, which is necessary to see those things for what they really are. To be able to look around us even today in that darkness, to look around us and know that he's at work even when we question it or we wonder how or how can you be brought glory? God, can you deliver your people today? Of course he can. Of course he is. He preserves that holy Catholic church. And so if we would simply give ourselves to knowing God, instead of trying to figure out every other thing that goes on in this world and how we're going to fix it, that we would give ourselves to Him and to His Word, to knowing the mighty lion's power to bring the world to nothing. That even again, that reference to the Sennacherib conflict, verse 5, the stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They up and ran. Those that were left, they're gone. Sennacherib leaves himself only to be killed by his sons. But it's even more than that. Because now we see it one time, but now God says, but do you remember my exodus? That connection there, verse 6, at your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. It's the overtone of the song of Moses and of Miriam after the Red Sea crossing. The horse and rider he has cast into the sea. This is his work. This is his power. He is the same God that was to be feared then, that is to be feared by us now. And he's still working. He's still faithful. And so how does this lion make himself most powerfully known? His roar most powerfully heard? By his word and spirit. That's how it will come. That's how it's brought about. Simply at his word, he is able to completely and utterly destroy every weapon and force of man. He still speaks by that word. Truly omnipotent in every way, he opens his mouth and the world melts. Do we believe him? Do we believe in him? Do we believe that this God is still strong and mighty to save? Still a powerful lion roaring for his people. Because it is this lion who's not tame, but who is a good and gracious king, who is always, at power, always powerful and powerfully at work in you and for you and for your salvation, 
who dwells in the midst of us and among us that we would know him and properly fear him and worship him and serve him. He is still great in our midst, a lion among us. So let our knowing start there. Don't forget. Believe that. Give thanks for that. But in that fear, be properly humbled by that. God, you are that lion of Judah. And you have given us your one and only, that lion, Jesus Christ, to live and die for us that we might have life, that we would bow before you and know the power, not only that you have over creation, but to powerfully save me and to guarantee me an inheritance and a hope and a future forever. And so I will fear you. I will fear you in all things. Knowing that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That the fear of God makes us wise unto salvation. That the fear of a lion makes you run rightly to be protected to find someone who will keep you safe. And so before that lion, if we will not consider that there is one among us, that he is not powerful to work his will and way, we will be made to fear the judgment of God. And that in the second place, because it's the interesting function of the following repetition in verse 7. But you, you are to be feared. Not us, not the circumstances of the world, not the nations around us that war against him and against us. Will anything separate us from the love of God? No. What can man do to me? I have nothing to fear in that way. But I have every reason to fear God because to know him is to fear him. And that's not just his call for us. Not just part of the church. That's to be the thing that we speak. That God is to be feared. Not just amongst the church, not just among his people. We can't make some kind of separation for ourselves. As though he's dealing differently here than somewhere else. No, this is his call. He must be feared and he alone. And yet we know the hatred of that message. That we know in our former life of sin in the sin and wickedness that mankind walks in today apart from God, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That we stop and pause sometimes and are overwhelmed by just how quickly things have seemed to roll even over the last couple of decades. There is no fear of God before their eyes. To them, God is not one to be feared, to listen to, to be respectful of, to kneel in awe before. Mankind does not fear God and therefore struts about not fearing his judgment. But before we just start chucking bricks at the world, what about our putting them down to consider our own hearts? How true this can be among those who hear that God is among us, but believe that God is only love and joy and acceptance. A God not angry with sin and selfishness. A God who will not be just, but only merciful. Congregations, such pew-sitters do not know God. Because to know God is to fear God. 
He's holy and righteous altogether. We must know that. It must start there. And if an unbelieving world will not know that or fear that, now or ever, theirs will be fear in the last day and forever. And while that stands as a hope for us, because God will be faithful to his word, that should serve as fear for them, even as it comes out of our mouths, speaking the truth in love. Why? Because God will be faithful to his word. Who can stand before you once your anger is roused? Because in that day of judgment, that anger will never be abated. That wrath will never cease. Are we speaking that? And here this word, as again Motir writes, super helpful in his commentary, is a word which concerns the exasperation of the Lord, likened to a snort of anger when patience has run out. What are you doing? Who is to be feared? It brings remembrance of that fleshed out judgment and fear which will be revealed in Revelation 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became as black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? then there will be real fear. Then all men will rightly fear, far worse than meeting a lion up close in Africa. In fact, that would be preferred. It will be the fear of coming before a holy God in the fury and power of his righteous judgment. And when that comes, all will go quiet. Verse 8, from the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. There will be fear in that day. Every knee will bow. And it will be still. And that message of judgment is not a new thing. They will not be caught unaware. As though they had never heard it. Or never knew it. Because that message of salvation but also of judgment has issued forth from the beginning just after the fall into sin. The serpent will be crushed and his seed judged forever. But what is more remarkable in this verse in the way that the word is written in the Hebrew, it speaks of coming judgment as though it's already fully and assuredly taken place. The prophetic perfect which informs our reading of Psalm 46. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. But then that call now, don't wait. Be still and know that I am God. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. But back in this psalm, how will he be exalted? In fear and in judgment and in holiness and in salvation. When God arose to establish judgment, it's sure to be. There will be no avoiding of it in the last day apart from the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. That judgment will be established. He will bring the reprobate to judgment, which means what? That there is true salvation for the elect. The mighty lion is a holy judge. All his judgments are holy and right. So please, even right now, by the power of God's word and spirit, know plainly the purpose of the judgment of the lion of Judah. He will save his people from their sins. He will gather them from all over the world to himself, to that new Jerusalem, to that Mount Zion forevermore. It's the glory of Hosea 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Why? Because they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Judgment and blessing. Blessing and curse. God will work in power, and such should inform then our understanding of the fear of the Lord, because even in the moment of justice, even by way of that fear, the Lord will be praised. Verse 10, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. God will work in his sovereign providence every bit of that judgment. God will receive all the glory for it. And then he'll take all the wrath of man, all their rebellion, and turn it for our good in his glory. That's our hope. That's how we are able to look ahead. That is how we are able to look at our days now. Not in fear and trepidation at what man will do, but in the calm and deep-rooted assurance of what God has done and will do and will always do. That all of his just judgments will serve for him in a way like when we win a belt buckle or a medal. That's how he's going to wear it. Forever and ever, that is how he will wear it. The glory and honor for the victory is his alone. But you say, then what should that work in us? We know what's coming for the world. It's sure to be. But what are we called to? How should the fear of God rightly be working in us day by day? That fear should drive you to that lion. 
recognizing who he is, fearing him rightly, but drawing near rightly. It should drive us to Christ, to know him better and love him more than ourselves. And in knowing Jesus, to know the Father and the life that only Jesus is able to grant through his blood and righteousness. That that fear calls you to what? To nothing other than faith in Jesus Christ. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you may be saved. That the fear of the Lord empowered by his word and Holy Spirit tonight would drive you to Jesus Christ that you would live. You're called to believe in the Lord Jesus that you would be saved. And for those of you living out life in Christ who know Him to be holy and just and good, who seek to live in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You know Him. So live that life of knowing Him in hope and in obedience. Cling to it. And then live that out. Verse 11, make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. If this is the God we know and we trust, that we fear, that we take it as word, we have every reason for hope in the power of the Lion of Judah, in Jesus Christ. But hope is no hope at all if it's not lived out in active obedience to the one who's to be feared. Your hope means junk if you are not willing to serve the Lord Christ. So let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Bring your worship. Bring him that glory. Serve him, the one who is to be feared, because he is known and glorious and majestic and awesome and awful all at once. So bring him all of your praise, all of that honor, all of the glory do his name. That he is calling you by way of that fear, by way of that knowledge to worship, to exclusive loyalty, because he is to be feared and because he is good. In fact, brothers and sisters, if we will not fear him, we have no purpose in calling his name good. Rather, as in verse 12, we should be calling his name the fear. That is how we should reference God, even if it is there. Look again, verse 12. Who cuts off the spirit of princes who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Literally, it says here in this text, should be feared, or who is the fear, to the kings of the earth. That is and will be his name. The fear. Who's coming again if I'm going to live in my sin and rebellion? The fear. It's his name, Genesis 31, 53, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, not fearing Isaac, the fear of Isaac, the Holy One of Israel. And so for us, a right fear of him should be a part of our approach. It should be a part of our honor. It should be a part of our understanding every time that we come before his word, every time that we enter this place, any time we open our mouth, or before we do anything. It says in Isaiah 8.13, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. 
Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. It has to operate that way, that he would be so revered among us that we too would know him by that name, that we would know God to be terrible so that we would draw near rightly. An approach by which in that way, in humility, we can come to know his love and nearness in his grace. Because we cannot approach such a lion to be feared in and of ourselves. But he has made a way for us that we could come. In the lion and the witch in the wardrobe, Aslan is sacrificed on the stone table so that the sins of Edmund could be saved. We have a way better book and a way better story. Because Jesus Christ suffered for us and for the sins of all of his people on the cross, that we would be saved. We are not worthy, but he is. To know this God is to fear this God. And in such fear to glorify his name. It's the picture we have in Revelation 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, open your eyes. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That lion, which brings judgment upon the nations draws near to fulfill every promise of your deliverance. Congregation to know God is to fear God. He is not tame, but he is good. He's our king. So approach him rightly and serve him gladly. Find your salvation only in him. Marvel at his presence among us. Serve him in fear. For if you will not, you will live in such fear now and forevermore. Thanks be to God for the gift of his son, the Lion of Judah who lives and dwells among us. Amen. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth and the power of your word. And Father, we desire to know you but to know you is to fear you. And we confess to you, Father, hearts that are far too cavalier about our sin, about what we want, about what we build, about our own kingdoms, without wholly laying ourselves bare before the requirement of your word, your son, your glory, your holiness. That while woe is me, I am ruined, sounds great in Isaiah 6. It very rarely comes out of our lips. And Father, in many ways, it's because of the salvation that has been promised us in Christ. A salvation that allows us to cry, Abba, Father. 
but yet to do that rightly and reverently through him and in him by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Father, that you would grant us in this place, in this church, a greater zeal and desire to know you, to love you, to follow you, to serve you. Grant us a deeper hunger for your word, to hide it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. And when we do sin, that we would run to you. Ultimately, because we are, not, we are found in Christ, not fearing eternal judgment. But knowing, Father, that our relationship needs to be restored. And that we need to cling to Christ. And Father, for those that who do not know you, that do not know, that will not know. Father, those who rebel against you you will be revealed to them as the fear. And so, Lord, may that reality amongst those that you have called to be holy and your children, Father, may that come out of our mouths with love and respect, but nonetheless, let it come out of our mouths. That we would speak the truth. That we would have enough of a heart for the lost. That we wouldn't stop speaking the truth that we would be salt and light in all of the best ways in fear of you, for that is what you call us to in your word. And so we pray, Father, pour your spirit out in abundance upon us. Embolden us, renew us, restore us again to that calling to go forth and make disciples, to call sinners to repentance and faith, to be a sent out church on mission together, knowing you and fearing you, in the promise of our eternal life in you and in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.